doing again tonight. Encouragement to me. I'm just going to open in prayer. We'll dive right into Revelation 2. Please pray. Father, we, we gather here this evening because we are very aware of our need for you, our need for your help. Lord, our need to be instructed by your word because we are prone to wander. And uh, Lord, we also are here because primarily because we want to pray and to seek your assistance in all that we're endeavoring to accomplish as a church. And so we do pray that you would visit us with great grace. You'd stir up our hearts, uh, focus our minds, and uh, even direct us uh, as we listen so we would see what it is that you want us to do individually and corporately, and even how we would pray, even as we continue with our service and prayer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Well, the, the famous opening monologue of Star Trek begins with the assertion that space is the final frontier. And I mean, what they mean is uh, we've explored everything there is to explore on Earth, and so the frontier now isn't in the new world. The frontier is space. But I think, um, truth be told, the true frontier is death. Because we really don't know what existence um, on the other side of the grave is really going to be like. Um, because nobody has ever died and come back with a resurrected body except Christ. And even when Christ was raised, he didn't give a whole lot of detail or explanation about what life is like on the other side. Paul says that he got a glimpse of heaven in Second Corinthians 12, but he's less than helpful. When he says, I saw things of which a man is not permitted to speak. And so, even there, we don't know, again, what life on the other side of the grave will be like. And I think part of that is why even Jesus didn't give much explanation. Because we really don't have the categories. Even if they were to explain what life was like, we mentally, I don't think, could register what they were saying. And the point of Christ's letter to the church of Smyrna that we'll look at this evening is essentially that they should not fear life on the other side of the grave. They should not fear death because really death is really just the beginning of eternal life. And in the New Testament, as you know, the Bible speaks of death as sleep. Just recall how the death of Stephen was described in Acts 7.60. It says, In falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Right? Obviously, he didn't take a nap. They're saying he died because he was stoned. And multiple other references, Acts 13.36, 1 Corinthians 11.30, 1 Corinthians 15.6, 15.18, 20.51... First uh, Thessalonians four thirteen through fifteen, First Thessalonians five ten, Second Peter three four, all describe death consistently as sleep. That's not an accident. And so, I, I, the way we need to think of death is is similar to how a four year old thinks on Christmas Eve when he goes to bed. Now, unless they grow up in a, a, a very rough family. 
No four-year-old dreads going to bed on Christmas Eve because they so greatly anticipate what they're going to experience when they awake the next morning. They're going to receive gifts that they've been longing for. They're going to spend wonderful time with the people they care most about. They are going to feast on their favorite foods and treats. And that's because they have faith in the coming joy that awaits them when they go to bed on Christmas Eve. And we need to not only think of death this, death this way, but we need to be convinced of it. And this is, this is really what Jesus wants the church of Smyrna to be aware of as he soberingly tells them what awaits them in the future. And unlike the children who get tucked into quiet beds by loving parents on Christmas Eve, some of these Christians will fall asleep suffering. Uh, Many the same way that Stephen did in Acts 7. A very simple outline to the passage. Um, Christ begins with a theological introduction. And then he describes their present situation that he's aware of. He tells them what their future situation will be. And then offers some future hope. Let's look first of all at the theological introduction. He says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write this, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now again, Jesus addresses this letter, as he did with Ephesus and the rest, to an angel. And I mentioned last week that there's some considerable debate about why he referred what he even means by an angel? What, why address it to an angel? Um, well, as you know, angelos means messenger. And I came across a very persuasive explanation this week. Um, and that is that we should understand this as referring to a human messenger who would then go and deliver the message that Jesus is giving to the churches to each individual church. So it's not so much that Christ is writing to a messenger as much as he's right, telling the messenger what to write and what to deliver to these churches. And so he's probably not speaking of a supernatural angel, angelos, though that's how the word is used throughout the book of Revelation, um, but a human messenger. And I, if we understand it this way, I think it would explain uh, why the exhortations are given to the members of the church and not a singular individual. And it would have the least mystery and complications of all the other explanations I've come across. So I think that's what's being referred to here is it's just a, a messenger who will deliver this letter to each of the churches. Well, this letter is being sent to Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna is about 30 miles or so north of Ephesus. Uh, it was a faithful ally of Rome long before Rome was a major power in the eastern Mediterranean. And uh, because of that, it gained a lot of favor from Rome when it came to power. It was famous for its beauty, for uh, especially its magnificent buildings. Uh, it is currently described as Izmir, and it's the second largest city in Turkey. So the, it has not gone out of existence. It's still around. And as I mentioned last week, the description that Christ gives in the introductions to each of these letters really are theological introductions. And what he, the way he describes himself is going to be relevant to the information that he conveys to them. And he's about to tell them that they're going to be put through some difficult tribulation 
and some of them will even die. But before he says this, he reminds them of who he is. Namely, that he is the eternally existent one. And that he has previously been resurrected from the dead. And because of this, they should be strengthened regarding what he's going to tell them. As we noted in chapter 1, the phrase first and the last is a reference to Jesus' eternal nature. He, he has always been. He never had a beginning. He never had an ending. Though he was born of the Virgin Mary, he existed prior to his birth. And he will also have no end. He's eternally existence. And, and the reason this is relevant is because he knows what life is like on the other side. So when he's giving exhortations to not fear death, he's not just guessing. It's even different than when I say, you don't need to fear death. I say that based upon what the Bible says. Christ could speak from experience. He really knows what's on the other side. And he's not just from that other supernatural dimension. He's the king over it. He rules over the supernatural world. And all of us will one day die, just as some of the Christians in Smyrna will soon taste death. But Jesus gives us absolute assurance that if we're in Christ, death is not, in, is not something any Christian should fear. And the fact that he also mentions that he died and came to life is also relevant for their situation. Because Jesus knows what it's like to be tortured. He knows what it's like to die and suffer unjustly. And so he can fully sympathize with whatever fear or anxiety or grief they're currently experiencing or will experience. And because of this, he can encourage them with assurance that because he came to life after death, they too will rise from death if they are with him. Turn your Bibles really quickly to 1 Corinthians 15.22. This is a very important verse for Christians to hold on to in the face of death. And if you're ever called to be near a person who is on their deathbed, this is a verse that you will want to have memorized that you can give them as an assurance. 1 Corinthians 15.22 Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Just, I mean, if you're a human, if you've been born of Adam, right, which we all are, we're all descendants of Adam, therefore you will die, but with the same assurance, if you're in Christ, you can know that you will live. Right? Your eternal life is as sure as you breathe today. That's what Paul is saying. So you can tell a person who's on their deathbed that they're really just about to take a long nap. They will awaken again, but when they do awaken, they will awaken in a glory that far supersedes anything that they can even wildly imagine. So glorious that Paul was not even permitted to try to describe what it was like. And we must also remember Jesus' sweet words to Martha that he gave following the death of her brother. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Do you believe this? We didn't mean that we won't die physically, but he means that they would never taste permanent death. Or what, the, what we'll see here is described as the second death. Because they will rise again. It's not really death for the Christian. It's just sleep. And I think we just need to be convinced of that. It's okay when Christians die. Secondly, he points to their present situation in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And we need to note the immense comfort in the very first words that Jesus used here. I know. One word in the Greek, oida. Jesus knows our trials, our temptations, our weaknesses, our annoyances, vexations. See, nobody else in the world can truly say they know what we're going through. But Jesus can. And we meet people who are suffering. We, we can sympathize with them. We can offer comfort from the word of God. But none of, nobody can really know everything a person's going through. Because even if we've had similar experiences, we're different people. Different contexts. Different situations. Different fears. Different struggles. But Jesus can say he knows. Because he's omniscient. And... The God of all comfort, the judge of us all, knows everything that any of us have ever gone through. He knows it. Again, this is a verse to memorize and to present to people in their trials. Because we can tell them with assurance that Jesus does know exactly what they're going through. Everything about what they're going through. He, can, he alone can say, I know your tribulation. The Greek word is and it's a broad word that refers to any sort of affliction, distress, suffering, oppression. It covers everything from getting an ingrown toenail to facing a fiery death, to being discouraged, to suffering with severe suicidal depression, to being teased by a sibling, to being slandered publicly for some great evil. That you never did. So it covers all manners and degrees of distress. And Jesus is saying, I know them. He knows. We're not alone. He's not missing a thing. He he also knows our financial circumstances, he says. He tells the Christians here that he knows their poverty. Now, it's remarkable that Jesus says, I know your poverty... But he doesn't give any sort of assurance that he's going to make them rich soon. Even though he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he doesn't say that he's going to do anything regarding their impoverished circumstances. And he doesn't do anything to relieve them of their circumstances. This is one of those verses that the word of faith preachers and the health and wealth charlatans just conveniently overlook. Because why... Why would a loving God not bring relief if he knows how impoverished they are? The answer is, is because he doesn't really see it as a prominent problem. In fact, I don't think Jesus sees poverty as a problem at all, nor does God the Father. Part of the evidence of this is 
God sent his son to be born in poverty. He was born in a stable. He grew up in Nazareth. And probably in impoverished circumstances. God's not concerned about how much money we possess as much as how we handle it. Is it a threat or is it a tool for our lives? Is it a means to his glory or an end that we live for? And Paul understood this. And that's that's why he wrote in uh, Philippians 4.11, Not that I'm speaking in being in need, because I've learned to be content in whatever situation I am. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's point is, the secret is not having more or having less. It's just being content. Poverty isn't a problem. The problem is discontentment. And Jesus is saying, I know your financial circumstances, but you're rich. And they're rich because they're content. They have real riches. True wealth is what what he's saying is it's not found in how much we have, but the contentment with what we have. Now contrast what Jesus tells this impoverished church in Smyrna to what he tells the church in Laodicea. Revelation 3.17, he tells that church, you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, they probably were wealthy and prosperous and in need of nothing financial, but they were spiritually broken. They were spiritually impoverished. And the point is, Jesus says, I know. The church down the road looks like it has it all. They boast in what they have. They look down their noses at you because of your poverty. And he says, but you're rich. I know it. Jesus also says he knows about the slander that they're having to endure. Like, look at how he describes it. He says, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, apparently there was a, a number of Jews in Smyrna. Uh, that were spreading lies about the Christians there. Uh, We have evidence of this, not just in uh, what's written here in Revelation 2, but actually in other ancient documents. There was a large portion of Jews in Smyrna, and they were very hostile to Christians. We're not told exactly what they say, um, but that they were slandering the Christians there. Now, Paul says that they're not real Jews because... Jews are supposed to be God's covenant people, set apart to worship him. But these Jews actually says, have made a pact to serve Satan and rebel against God. In fact, he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Now, we need to realize these are, these are Jesus' words. It's not just some hyperbolic statement by another mortal. Jesus describes them as a synagogue of Satan. And we're not told what this agreement with Satan was like whether it was an actual, like some sort of satanic ritual that they were aware of or that they had just aligned themselves with the great accuser himself in some way and their opposition to Jesus and the church. None of, whatever it is, 
Jesus recognizes that they're not on his side, on Yahweh's side, they're on Satan's side. And he says, I know it. He's not deceived. And because they've aligned themselves themselves with Satan, they're the opposite of God's people. They may be ethnic Jews, but they're not real Jews, Paul's saying. Now again, we're not told what they were uh, slandering the Christians of. But some of the common lies that were spread against Christians at this time period were lies that they were cannibals. Because they ate the, the flesh and drank the blood of their leader. They were accused of committing incest because spouses would refer to one another as brother and sister in Christ. And so they would take these lies and spread them, and this was often what they would use to convince the Roman authorities to punish them, that this is what the Christians believed, and therefore they needed to be terminated as a religious movement. And this is their present situation. Now, given the the painful circumstances of this church, you would expect the next thing for Jesus to say, after saying, I know everything that you're going through, the next thing to be, and I'm coming and I'm going to bring relief. That's actually not what he says. He actually says things are about to get worse. But he provides some encouragement in the midst of that. And this is, this is worth our consideration. Because the reality is, as Christians, we're not promised that the suffering we go through in life will ever be relieved. It may never end. In fact, it will probably only get worse. And our priority should not be to find better or more pleasant circumstances, such as just choosing to move to Montana or find a different job. Our focus should just simply be on learning to be faithful where the Lord has planted us, knowing that he will move and direct us as he sees fit. doesn't mean we can't entertain those options as they come available, as we seek to discern his will, but we shouldn't just want a change in circumstances because things are tough. Because things are difficult. And Jesus' message to the Smyrnian Christians is full of foreboding. Let's look at his description of their future situation in verse 10. He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. And he tells them specifically they're going to suffer in verse 10. Specifically, they're going to be thrown into prison. And for 10 days, they're going to experience tribulation. But he also tells them precisely what they need to know as they enter into this. First of all, they need not to fear. In fact, they're commanded not to fear. They're not to let their mind run wild in imagining how bad it's going to be. But instead they need to focus just on the present situation in front of them and how they need to respond in the present. And this is the key to overcoming fear. Don't listen to your imagination run its narrative about how terrible things are going to be in the future. Instead, focus on the present and, and the reality of what is present. Because the things we fear aren't real. They're not. It's, it's, it's our fantasies that our, that our minds are creating about what we think the future will be like. But that's not real. What's real is the present. 
what's right before us right now. And so Jesus commands them not to fear the future, but instead what they need to know is the reason behind their suffering and imprisonment. That's the second thing they need to know. The reason behind their suffering and imprisonment. And the reason is that they're being tested. Jesus is going to prove who's real and who's just a fake. Who's just taken the name of Christian because they're attracted to what benefits Christ offers, but who have not really chosen to die to themselves and to live for his glory. And suffering will prove the quality of each one's faith. So so he's telling them, this is a test. It's going to help you know if you're real. So that when you come to die, you can have absolute assurance that you have nothing to fear. The test is not a problem. It's assurance. And thirdly, Jesus tells them, you need to be faithful unto death. That's That's the next thing they need to know. Their calling... As they face death is simply to be faithful. And what he's saying is some of of you will die. That's the point. Be faithful unto death. And they shouldn't fear it. Instead, they need to be resolved and recognize that this is the fate that God has designed. It's not an accident. It's not like something's gone wrong. God has designed this. He's purposed it, appointed it for that time. And he's saying death is not a fate to fear, but it's a, it's a calling to be faithfully embraced. In fact, Revelation 12.11 says, as you know, that this is how the saints actually conquer Satan. So that they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They conquered him by their confidence. That Christ was greater than death. During the reign of Bloody Mary, 288 people were burned at the stake. 55 were women and 4 were children. And John Rogers was the first to be executed. And he had been in prison, in prison for a year because he had published the Bible in English. And he for preaching the gospel in England. And J.C. Ryle, in, in one of his books, describes Roger's final hours. It says, On the morning of his martyrdom, he was roused hastily in his cell in Newgate and hardly allowed to dress himself. He was then led forth to Smithfield on foot, within the side of the church of the St. Sepulchre where he had preached, and through the streets of the parish where he had done the work of a pastor. By the wayside stood his wife and ten children, one a baby. He just saw them, but was hardly allowed to stop, and then walked on calmly to the stake, repeating the 51st Psalm. An immense crowd lined the street and filled every available spot in Smithfield. Up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death, and could hardly believe that prebendaries, which means church leaders, and dignitaries would actually give their bodies to be burned for their religion. But when they saw John Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily and unflinchingly into a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. Even the French ambassador said that Rogers went to death as if he was walking to his wedding. 
And he could do that because he was convinced this was not an accident. This is what he had been called to. He was being faithful unto death. He understood he was an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. And he could face death like this because he knew he wasn't a victim any more than Jesus was a victim. This is what was designed. And Jesus concludes his message to the Christians of Smyrna with a fortified certainty of hope that they too could follow in a similar path. He says in verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Again, as as I mentioned before, the second death is is a reference to hell. It's, It's described this way in Revelation 26. Sorry, Revelation 20, verse 6. Also verse 14 of that chapter. And then Revelation 21, 8. In Revelation 20, verse 14, it says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Right, what, we, what we know of is hell. In 21, 8, it says the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So so Jesus is saying, if you're in Christ, if you don't give in to the temptation to deny Christ, death is not something to fear. Because you will not taste hell. And, and, And that tells us death isn't the real threat. The real threat is hell. Eternal judgment and punishment for all the sins that we've committed against the Holy God. But if a person's in Christ, death will not lead to hell. Death, rather, is a door to the, the most glorious joy and bliss that we could ever imagine. As Jesus told the Smyrnians, a horrific persecution erupted in the city shortly after Revelation was written. It happened just as he said it would happen. And one of the most ancient documents preserved in this time period is a letter written by the members of the church in Smyrna to other churches telling them of the persecution that they had to endure and encouraging them in the, in the faith. And it particularly focused on the death of their pastor, a man by the name of Polycarp. When Polycarp was brought into the stadium for execution, the people said that they heard a voice cry out to him, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And they, they said they, they heard the voice, but they couldn't tell who was speaking. And when Polycarp was finally brought before the proconsul, who would put, pass judgment upon him, the proconsul repeatedly sought to persuade him to deny Christ. And Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? So when the proconsul's exhortations didn't work, he turned to threats. And he said, if you don't deny Christ, I'll throw you to the beasts. Polycar simply said, call for them. For the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us, but is a noble thing to change from sin to righteousness. He says, I'm not going to repent for my faith. Because 
that would be a worse thing. Because I have already repented from my sin. He was then threatened with being burned alive. And he said to this, you threaten me with fire, which burns for a season and after all, what little while is quenched. Because you're ignorant of the fire of future judgment and eternal punishment, which are reserved for the ungodly. His point is, I'm not afraid of these temporal flames. And the only reason you're threatening me is because you don't understand the flames that await you. So even there, Polycarp's recognizing his job isn't to save himself. His job is to proclaim the gospel to this man who doesn't understand the faith that awaits him. He's preaching Christ in repentance. He's preaching Christ in the threat of hell. And he didn't relent, and therefore he was condemned to the flames. says, when this was proclaimed by the herald, that is his condemnation, the whole multitude, both of Jews and Gentiles who dwelt in Smyrna, cried out with unrestrained wrath and with a loud shout, this is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the puller down of our gods, who teaches numbers not to sacrifice nor worship. And before the fire was lit, he uttered these final words in prayer. And that the Christians in Smyrna wrote them down. These were his last words. He said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers and of all creation and the whole race of the righteous who live in your presence, I bless you. For you have granted me this day and hour that I might receive a portion amongst the number of martyrs in the cup of Christ under resurrection of eternal life both of the soul and of the body, in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among these in your presence this day as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as you prepared and revealed it beforehand and have accomplished it, you that are the faithful and true God, For this cause, yes, and for all things, I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you, through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom, with him and the Holy Spirit, be glory both now and for ages to come. Amen. What I want you to just notice in that prayer is it's just a prayer of praise. He's just saying, thank you that you've called me to endure this. Now accept my body as a sacrifice unto you. That's what it looks like to be faithful unto death. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us such examples in Stephen, in Paul, in Peter, in all the apostles and martyrs who have gone before us. And Lord, we know that in our flesh we do not have the words nor the strength to endure tortures or even just the fear of death. We know that that these things are only overcome by your grace. And so we pray that you would give us each grace as we face the hours before our death. Whether it comes as a surprise or it comes with even anticipation because the pain of suffering is so great. Lord, we pray that you'd give us grace to be faithful unto death. That you would be praised and that we would prove even to 
others the reality of our transformed heart and the power of your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.